0: Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 126, recorded April 17th, 2019. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Akin. And Brian, we have a special guest, don't we? Yes. Yeah, Cecil, Cecil Phillip. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it. It's great to have you on the show. You've been on TalkPython. I've been on your podcast away from the keyboard. So we might as well round this thing out, right? Yeah, we may as well go for the trifecta. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So uh, super excited to have you here. We got a bunch of cool stuff to cover. Before we get to it, just want to say thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode like they do many. Check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash DigitalOcean. More on that later. Brian, there's some really interesting news around Python being used for X, where X is find the Higgs boson or get the Nobel Prize in economics or Something else, right? You got a new one for us on that incredible Well, yeah,
1: I <laughs> was, was actually, I was the last of the list. I was surprised nobody else took it. But uh, <laughs> in the news recently, there's a picture of a black hole, which is cool. And it's really neat that there's a, a bunch of Python involved in it. And of course, this is a big team with lots of software and whatnot. But a couple people did some digging. I'm linking to a uh, quick write-up from Mike Driscoll. So the Python used to take the photo of the black hole. He's referencing a paper, which is a paper from the Event Horizon team. It includes uh, references to lots of our favorites, like NumPy and SciPy, Pandas, Jupiter, Matt Plotlib, and AstroPy. So uh, yeah, lots of Python used in astronomy and uh, in this black hole picture.
0: That's so cool. And the reason this is a big deal is this is literally the first picture of a black hole ever, right? Yeah. One of the reasons
1: why I linked this article as well is it links to um, a TED Talk from a couple of years ago basically, of how they took some of the concepts around how this picture was generated, not the technical part, but just in high-level concepts, and that there's a lot of people involved in it, and it's a pretty big deal. And uh, I'm looking forward to every time anybody ever ever asks me for the rest of my life, so what can you do with Python? I can say, well, <laughs> we helped uh, with the entire picture of the black hole thing, so whatever you need it for, we could probably handle it. <laughs>
0: That's funny. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. I wonder if it was used in the detection of the gravitational waves for black holes as well. So maybe that'd be a nice way to round it out, but I honestly don't remember there. Cecil, are you into astronomy? I
2: am a little bit, to be honest with you. We actually have the Kennedy Space Center that's pretty close by. I'm in Florida for everybody that's listening. That doesn't know, and so it's, it's definitely something that we'd love to go over and do. Um, There's like a little observatory in there if you've ever been. Yeah, so it's really kind of interesting to you know take the little one over and like see how excited he gets over like stars and planets and, and those types of things.
0: That's so cool. I've definitely been to Kennedy Space Center as well, taking my daughter there, and it's it's a great place. And it's so awesome that Python and all these tools. I mean, this is like the big hitters list of all the data science in Python used for this real cool discovery.
2: Yeah, this is amazing. You should definitely get, I can't remember her name at the moment, but the the girl that they attributed to taking the pictures on your yes, show.
0: Yes, Dr. Bowen Bowman. Yeah, I almost have it right. Katie Bowman. There you go. Yeah, that's right. And she yeah, I've invited her to the show to talk Python. It would be great to have her come and talk about this because it's so exciting. You know, what's really unfortunate is there was such a weird internet backlash against her in particular. There were so many trolls and other weird stuff. For example, I tried originally to reach out to her through Twitter and somebody had set up a fake account with pictures of her and video posts and all sorts of stuff to make it look real, but it got suspended because apparently it was I don't know what the deal is, you know. Sorry that she had to go through that, but it's awesome this the stuff she's doing, which is really
2: cool. Yeah, that's really sad to see. I mean it's we all have a very supportive community in developer relations in general. But um you're always gonna have one or two folks that are gonna just you know, just try and be nasty for no reason. You know, I think yeah. what she's done was, you know, totally amazing and and I think she deserves all the credit that she gets for it. Absolutely. The problem is, you know, you take 1% of
0: 1% of 1% of people who are absolute jerks, and then you put them on the internet where they can, you know, reach out to you all the time. It, it feels like there's way more jerks than there actually are, but yeah, I still got to deal with it. It's a bummer. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So, Cecil, something I'm super excited about is WebAssembly and the possibility to bring various... you like, desktop or native code to browsers, right? So you don't have to just go, well, does it compile to JavaScript and run in JavaScript? Like WebAssembly means you don't have to, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So just for everyone that might be listening, so WebAssembly essentially is this new standard that are in that's in most modern browsers today. And essentially it allows you to target somewhat of a virtual machine, right? But essentially it's running in the browser. And so if whatever your language of choice happens to be can compile down into WebAssembly, then you could run it in the browser. What I actually ran into when I was on Reddit was this thing called wasmr And what this is is a project that will allow you to take that WebAssembly output right, and run it in a Python application, which is kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, that's like the opposite of what I expected, actually.
2: Right, it's actually pretty interesting. So, so this is not Python running on WebAssembly in the browser, although I'm pretty sure there's a few projects that can do that. This is Python taking the WebAssembly output the wasm file, WASM file, and running it in your Python application, which is interesting. So if you think about again, WebAssembly is you know allows us to run these different languages in the browser. So if we have these different languages targeting WebAssembly, and then we have a Python module that allows us to run that executable. Essentially like we could run any language on Python, right? Or yeah. at least we'll have that that ability to interoperate between all these things, just using WebAssembly as like that common language, I guess, that we're all speaking. That's so cool. So
0: what we have in Python now is you can compile stuff to C and then use the C extensions and bring it in and run it. But this means anything that compiles to WebAssembly can now execute sort of natively in Python, regardless of whether there's like decent integration between
2: those two languages. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, right? And so this is like... The essence of cross-platform software <laughs> development, right? Like when you think about it.
0: You know what I thought about when you when you said this is like, I was thinking, like, oh, this is kind of like Node. I can take stuff that used to be on the web, but now I can run it like locally, but running it instead of like JavaScript, I run it like Python, but it takes anything that kind
2: of was on the web, which is pretty wild. Exactly. So the folks that are really behind this WebAssembly movement was um, actually Mozilla, and so they already have some implementations of their Rust programming language that targets WebAssembly. So I could write Rust that targets, you know, that, that builds down to that, this dot WASM file and then run it in my browser. So now imagine I could write something in Rust or C or something like that, that targets this WebAssembly file. And I could just run it in Python, right? So, you know, if there so happens to be something that's missing or a module that I want to use, like I could totally just bring it into my Python application and just use it. Ooh, I'm pretty excited about this.
1: Thinking I can use uh, some of the awesome Python testing tools to test my WebAssembly projects then.
2: Yeah, probably too. That'd be pretty interesting to try out. I ran this up a little bit yesterday just just to try it out and it actually works pretty well. And so now as the WebAssembly community just starts to grow, you can imagine as these different runtimes and languages want to start a target WebAssembly, you know, that just kind of opens up the world to, to everybody else, right? Because... Now I can just pull those into my Python application and just run them. I love it. This is a super cool find. Yeah, I mean, I don't know
0: how much of the, is it this now, but I can see a future where there will be stuff that's like WebAssembly only. You know, once the adoption is greater, you're like, oh, that's only available in WebAssembly. Like, well, now it's also available in Python. I love it. And Brian, I think you totally could, right? There's an example here that's a Rust function that takes two numbers and returns the values and things like that. And then the Python example of calling it. So yeah, you could wrap that up in PyTest, I think. Pretty sweet. Yeah, That's a really, really cool one. The next one I want to talk about is called Cooked Input. And this one is a really cool little project. Do you remember Bullet, Brian? Yeah. Cecil, I don't know if you caught this one, but Bullet is this library that lets you basically create drop down combo boxes in the terminal with like arrow control. So you can like, and scroll bars and stuff. So you can say, I would like to get the ask the user for this and here's the five options and then the five right. options is like a drop down with like the things and you can like arrow through it and stuff like that and also has some features to say I want a number from you like with some limitations so cooked input is like that latter half to the extreme so you can do all sorts of cool stuff and the name comes from the idea of like Python 2 the way you got input from the user was raw underscore input so validated input is cooked input not raw input yeah that, that kind of thing oh <laughs> I like that nice, nice yeah it's funny right so the idea is you you can ask for all sorts of stuff, and it has this cleaning and this converting option and then this validation option. So I could go and say, I'd like to say, go to the user and get a string called what I ask the prompt is, what is your name? And of course, you could do that with input, but here you can specify, like, I would like whatever they type to be transformed to cap words. So like, if you type your name, all lowercase or like a, it'll put just first capitalized first letters and everything else is lowercase. Or you can say, like, I would like to get an integer. How old are you? And the minimum is one. You know, it just keeps asking the question and tells you what's wrong until it gives you the answer. So it's a really nice way to get input from the user on
2: the terminal that's, like, pre-validated. That's pretty interesting. So let's say, could I do something like, I don't going to say a very bad word here, use regex. (laughs) <laughs> and do something like get like my date formatted a certain way or four numbers inputted a certain way. Yeah, it has all
0: these different validators. And some of the validators have to do with dates and other types of things. So, like, give me an email address. Give me a date. And, you know, give me you – know, you can give an example of, like, the you know year, month, day, or whatever. And it'll, it won't it will let the user go on until they answer it correctly. That's pretty cool. Pretty nice. Brian, what do you think? You like it?
1: You're bringing a bullet. Is it a reason? Is it just um...
0: – a similar project, or I bring it up because it's another utility or, or library that like takes just get standard input from the user on the terminal and makes it a lot better. Yeah. Okay. Right. It's kind of like a not exactly a competitor, but a similar but different take on that idea.
1: Probably can use them together. Like if you wanted to do these free form entries, get it through through Yeah, Cook, and then drop downs then, Yeah.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't see why you couldn't do that. This also sort of came inspired by Bullet because. Our listeners are awesome. Anytime we mention something that we thought was like, oh, here's this new unique thing we've never heard of. They're like, and here's five other amazing ones you also haven't heard of and talked about yet, right? Yeah. So pretty cool. All right, before we get to the next one, let me tell you all about DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean run our infrastructure. They're really great, super happy with them. And one of the things they've recently done is launched their DigitalOcean marketplace, which is cool. So you just go to the marketplace and you say, I would like a a pre-configured Linux machine that's set up to run Django properly, like with Micro and G Unicorn and all that. Or I want a MongoDB server, or I want a Go server, whatever. And you just say, I want one of those, and bam, it just creates the whole virtual machine droplet ready to go, pre-configured. So they've got like GitLab Enterprise, Nginx, Postgres, CertBot, all that kind of stuff that you might need. So... Quite cool, oh, Just is one of the things you can get at DigitalOcean to get started more easily and quicker. So check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash digitalocean. Get a $100 credit for new users. Brian, you're starting to be a fan of PyCharm these days, right? I'm slowly, slowly wearing off on you. Is that right? Oh, no, I've been using it for
1: a while. But I, I use it with VI mode, of course because I can't unlearn Vim. It's just (laughs) built into my head now. So one of the things I've been trying to do is uh, use more Jupyter Notebooks for various uh, presentations and tutorials and stuff, and uh, just playing with stuff, especially with big data sets. But it bugged me that maybe there's a way to use VI within a web browser, but I I don't know how to do it. But uh, I can do it within PyCharm, and so the neat thing that I'm announcing right now, I guess it, I'm not really announcing it, I just want to highlight it, is that JetBrains and PyCharm have, have, have they, they have announced that they're working with the Anaconda Group to uh, get more support for things like conda environments and uh, notebooks into PyCharm. And I'm using the 2019.1.1 recently, the most recent build, And uh, the pro version, of course, but it, it makes it so that I can just edit my notebooks within PyCharm with the Vim emulation, all my normal things that I have hooked
0: up to PyCharm, and it just works great. I love it. That's super cool. And they have a special distribution for PyCharm for Anaconda, which has even better support. Now, I don't do much with Anaconda. I'm a fan of it, but like I just don't have a use case for it, so... I don't know a whole yeah. lot about it, but that sounds pretty cool.
1: I don't use it myself either, but I know that a lot of people, especially if they're behind firewalls and stuff, it's just easy an easier install for other people to put that on there.
0: That's pretty cool. Cecil, so, so you ever use PyCharm or being at Microsoft, are you uh, mostly on the Visual
2: Studio Code side of the world these days? To be honest with you, I'm still a big PyCharm user. Like I was using PyCharm prior to coming to Microsoft and I still use it a little bit. I do use our... Python extension for Visual Studio Code. Yeah, depending, that's getting nicer and nicer. Yeah, yeah, it's getting better and better. And you know, people love it obviously because it's free and it's open source, and you know, you can contribute back to it. But honestly, I'm I'm still a, a PyCharm guy. You know, I think when you you think about IDEs versus editors, like there's a different use case for those, right? And, like there's a group of folks that just need an editor. You know, making really quick changes or just kind of going through, like you know, I guess your run of the mill edits, builds, view type lifecycle. But I think when it comes down to debugging and really getting deep introspection into what's happening into your application, like you honestly can't beat like the, you know, the, the power of an IDE. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm sorry, sure. Brian. I know you're like a VI guy. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> I'm 100% in PyCharm now.
0: Do you just have it set up in VI mode? Yeah, I tried that for a minute. Yeah. Then I was like, whoa, somebody broke my PyCharm. I got to underst- disable this extension here. <laughs> <laughs> that was when we were playing with AceJump, which is really cool. But that's a, that's a different uh, topic for a different time. Yeah, Cecil, over at Azure, you guys have uh, some interesting stuff going on there. And one of the big trends, I don't know if it's really where the world is, but it's certainly where a lot of the hype and excitement is, is
2: around serverless code, right? Yeah, definitely. So serverless is where we hide your servers from you. I'm like, (laughs) so, so it's essentially like we're just taking the burden away from you in terms of like capacity planning, right? So that means that the servers are still there. But essentially all you need to do as a company, as a developer, is just you just need to give us your code or you know, upload it to GitHub or what have you. And then we'll take care of deploying it, scaling it, and doing all those types of things. So again, like you don't have to worry about this is how many virtual machines I need or this is how much RAM I need, and worry about backups and, and some of those types of things. But in, along with serverless, like you start to see like some interesting workloads that people want to build with them, right? So a lot of folks use it for APIs or the mobile backends to your web applications. Actually, I found a really interesting article yesterday, and this is on dev.2, which is a really cool um online community for developers, of you know, this guy that created this serverless solution using Python and it connected it to a Raspberry Pi to get like telemetry data. And so he connected the Raspberry Pi to this other offering we have called Azure IoT Hubs, and that allows you to do two-way communication to your, your IoT device. And so we connected to that, and then we send information over into Azure Functions. And then now he has, like, this real-time chart of telemetry showing up in a web browser, which I thought was pretty cool. So the pieces that he has connected to this are, are pretty straightforward, right? So he uses, again, he uses Python. He uses D3 for actually generating the charts. Oh, nice. Yeah, D3 is beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and he has this thing called C3, which I never heard about before so c3 sits on top of d3 and makes d3 easier specifically for creating charts okay nice if anybody's ever used d3 you know it's not like the easiest learning curve thing and you can do more than just create charts but like there's a charting library on top of that which i think is actually pretty cool but again this article is pretty interesting again it uses visual studio code and the python extension it uses functions serverless functions and then you know it shows you how you can take telemetry from an iot device specifically a raspberry pi push it up into the cloud, and now you're getting like this real-time telemetry. So if you think about it, like, I don't know, maybe you have like a garden in your yard and you want to have like moisture sensor or even a heat sensor or anything like that. Like you could start to get like interesting telemetry from your house or from your different devices and then push it up into a real-time chart using Python.
0: That's a really cool use case. And I like the way they lay it out. What's really interesting to me is the two-way communication. (laughs) Like calling into your Raspberry Pi seems more interesting than it talking out. Or more impressive, I guess.
2: Yeah. So when you think about it, I mean, messaging is is a hard thing to do sometimes, particularly when you're talking about a device that you don't necessarily have close by, right? And so definitely IoT Hub helps a lot with this. But I think for this particular use case, it's just using it one way, but you can go both ways if you needed to. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I like it. So if anybody wants to create a cool IoT thing, here's a, a nice
0: little write-up with Python and, and Azure. Yeah. What would you create with IoT if you could? Like Brian and I talk about this every now and then. I'm always like, it's so cool, but I actually can't think of anything I want to build that's you know not already out there. Like what would you build with some sort of IoT stuff if you had some
2: time and energy? I have two coworkers that actually build some interesting things. And I think I might copy them, so <laughs> I'm gonna call them out a little bit. So one of my coworkers lives in Tampa and so he's in the barbecue and he has like a professional grade barbecue grill in his backyard. Okay. He has like multiples of them. So he, we went over to his house one day for barbecue, and I'm like, dude, like, what are all these wires you have attached to this grill? <laughs> he has a sensor attached to the grill that's you know checking temperature and whatnot, and he had a Raspberry Pi. Could you not like hanging from the grill that was connected to his Wi-Fi in his house, and it was pushing telemetry to Grafana that was running on a server in his house. If folks on the letter listening don't know what Grafana is, Grafana is essentially like an open source dashboard. You know, you send it some information and it just generates a chart for you. So so he has this Grafana chart that's like in his house. And so he could look and see, oh, well, this is what temperature the steak is. And this is what temperature like the sausages are. I thought it was super cool. That's pretty awesome.
0: Brian, have you come up with any IoT things yet?
1: Actually, I'm intrigued by this whole barbecue thing. And it sounds great to me. You could even have extra probes in there to just to probe your meat while it's cooking.
2: What's cool with the two-way communication now is that so now he could look at it and be like, okay, this is hot enough. And then he could turn it down. right? Because again, it's you could do bi-directional communication with your device, right? So when, it, when you say it's getting too hot or maybe it's not hot enough, the IoT device, again, because it's connected to the temperature gauge, like he could adjust it. But he doesn't have to be right next to his grill. That's cool.
1: Yeah, and you could do a feedback loop, a control loop and have Like an AI actually cook your food for you then.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) You could do like 10 good grillings and then just like feed it to like some ML and go do more of that. That was good.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I actually like that. So maybe that's my project now. I'm going to have ML cook food for me. That'll be awesome.
0: That actually would be incredible. I would love to have some ML cooked barbecue with you. That'd be great. All right. The last one is not nearly as fun as machine learning cooked barbecue, but it's pretty useful. So in Python, the whole threading parallelism story is a little bit complicated, right? We've got threads, but they can only do IO bound stuff. They can't really do computational stuff because of the gill. We've got async and await, and that's really even better for IO driven concurrency, but it also doesn't work with the... Computational stuff. So if you really want to do computational concurrency, you have to use multiprocessing or C or something like that. Right. But the way you've exchanged data while those are running has been somewhat limited. Like certain structures can be shared and you know, you wait for the response to come back from the thing you're running over there. So new in Python 3.8, there is a new set of modules called multiprocessing dot shared memory. And the idea is you can create shared memory segments that are directly shared with all the multiprocessing subprocesses that are running in your parallel work. So if you're doing any multiprocessing, it's pretty cool. And a lot of it's fairly complicated. You're like reading and writing bytes directly, which sounds kind of gnarly. But there's also a shareable list, which is pretty cool. You can throw stuff on the list. You can pull stuff off the list. And it's shared just like straight shared memory
2: across the various processes, which I thought was a pretty cool addition. I'm wondering, so does it control access to who's writing? Because I'm guessing multiple people can't write to it at the same time. So I'm guessing there must be like some type of control that says this person's writing first and then this person's writing second kind of thing.
0: One would hope there's some serialized like shared critical section (laughs) or something that doesn't let it like corrupt the shared memory. But yeah, it's still pretty I haven't looked, but I I would guess so. I didn't see anything in the documentation about explicitly programming for that. It was just like, you put something in the list, you get something out of the list. But I bet internally... It's probably down at the sea level or something. It's pretty careful about that. Sure.
1: At the very least, this is a building block that we can build things like that on top
0: of. It's pretty cool. And it's nice to see, you know, new stuff coming in the threading world or parallelism world in Python. So this is, like I said, brand new in 3.8. So it's cool. Yeah, nice. Indeed. All right. Well, guys, that's it for our main items. But there's always a few extra things at the end to talk about. So, uh, Brian, what do you got that you want to throw out there?
1: Well, I'm just totally gearing up and getting excited for PyCon. I just got my stickers ordered, so I'm going to have uh, also bring in a bunch of copies of the PyTest book, try to sell some of those there. I only took like four
0: last year, and they sold out, so I'll bring Probably more Probably on your time. way to the booth, right? People mobbed you and got your book before you could even set them down?
1: Yeah, I was going to bring a whole bunch, but it turns out that like a whole bunch of books is heavy, so I'll bring some. <laughs> that sounds good. Also, I've never done live interviews for Testing Code. I think it'd be fun to do some uh, live interviews. You've done those
0: before. So I'll pick your brain on how to do that best and get some of those set up. Absolutely. I'm super excited about some live recordings at PyCon. I'm sure you and I will do some open session live Python bytes, but there'll also be some other stuff happening as well. I actually just bought some two little cool desktop mic holders for exactly that to bring to PyCon. So we'll, we'll see how they work. Nice. How about you, Cecil?
2: In terms of sharing? So I actually found a workshop online that I thought was pretty cool. So, you know, everybody's always talking about machine learning and I want to get into it, and but I don't know what exactly I could do with it. So I found this interesting Python workshop. And it's called Attendee Detector Workshop. Okay. So essentially, you go through this process of creating a Flast application. But essentially, what you do is like, you know, you upload a picture of like, let's say a group of people or the audience or the background or what have you. And using machine learning, like it'll help you like pick out the people that are in like the faces of the people that are in that picture that you put out and then it'll tell you like if they're smiling if they're happy if they're sad or what have you so which i think is pretty cool so you can imagine again as a speaker or i don't know maybe you go to a basketball game or something you take a picture and you can be like hey i don't really think these people are really interested (laughs) as to like what you're saying what's going (laughs) on here or hey like they're like somebody just scored like some points right like i'm really super excited about it but i think it's a really interesting practical application of using machine learning but also something that's very approachable because I think it's something that we all could relate to.
0: I think that's awesome. It would be really cool to get a camera and point it on your audience while you're doing a presentation and just have like a little meter of like audience engagement as like that only you
2: see while you're presenting something unrelated to this. And it'll show you like the faces of the people that aren't paying attention so you can like walk by them <laughs> and like stir them. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> You've been singled out by the AI. We have to talk. <laughs> exactly. I thought that was pretty cool so I put that um, in the extras. Another thing I wanted to talk about too is so I have actually downloaded your talk Python mobile app. I have it on my phone, actually. Nice. And so I took it with me when I was traveling last week and I actually say I actually pretty like it. I know we've been working on this probably for a while. We spoke about doing offline video content and whatnot for your show. So I'm really happy to see that this came out, man. This is super cool. Yeah, thanks. I'm really happy the way it came out as well. And it's it's really fun. Like even
0: I am experiencing going through my courses differently. You might think, well why would you do that? But I have other authors. I'm going through their content. They're going through mine, right? Like it's. I'm kind of a student as well. And it's super fun. We almost have the iOS version out, just the Android currently. But yeah, it's super, super close. So that was a fun project. Let's see. I, I do have a couple of other things I want to throw out as well. There's an interesting interview with Guido Van Rossum on MIT's AI podcast. This was sent over by Tony Capanelli. Thanks for sharing that with us. And this is just, you know, it's not really worth going into the whole thing, but it's, it's a different look at his perspective, like his perspective on science fiction and on machine learning and on just all sorts of stuff. So if you've got an hour or something, you want to just catch up with Guido and sort of a historical look on what he did and his accomplishments, it's it's pretty cool. Another one, Cecil, in in the whole Microsoft realm is Visual Studio IntelliCode for uh, VS Code, which is pretty awesome. So, we talked about some other projects that are like this, but this is, I think, a more legitimate one. So, IntelliCode is like autocomplete IntelliSense, but actually is based on the usage of your code. So, this works for Python, among other things. And it goes through, like, say, popular libraries on GitHub. So, when you go to your, if you install this extension, say, in VS Code, and you go to, and you hit, you know, regex dot, the stuff that shows up in the list first is not just alphabetical, but is actually the most commonly used things for like, say, popular libraries that use regex and stuff like that. So it kind of shows you in its contextual as well. So it's pretty cool that people can check that out and install that. And then finally, uh, my buddy Dan Coster sent me this yesterday. It just made me laugh. Somebody had gotten, was running a Craigslist, thing and gotten a message. Hey, you know, here's uh, my proposal or something to your Craigslist ad. Click here to sign up and, you know, fill it out or whatever. And it turned out to be a complete scam. It was like Craigslist.somerandomdomain.com. And he's like, all right, well, I could just ignore this or I could write a program to destroy this guy. And so it's a video <laughs> of him going through, figuring out where the, like, basically what it does is it shows you a fake Craigslist login to just steal your credentials. So he, he used uh, requests and some other APIs to actually go and just overflow the guy's database you know just generate like a hundred million fake logins and just blast them into his database so that's enjoyable anyone who feels like uh, a little bit of schadenfreude you can watch that it's pretty good <laughs> nice <laughs> nice I love that yeah it's pretty short and sweet it is Python too, so it's a bit of a bit of a knock on it but still it's it's all good and funny speaking of funny Brian what do you got for us, man?
1: Okay, well I used the uh, our pie joke, which uh, probably used it
0: too much, but uh, whatever. You can't use pie joke too much. And Cecil, we got to tell you, the way we get our jokes these days, sometimes people send them to us, but we found that there's a package called Pie Jokes, and if you pip install Pie Jokes, you can just go to your terminal and just type Pie Joke anytime you need a
2: developer joke. Are you serious? So it's just a package, and it'll just randomly yeah, generate jokes.
0: Exactly, it's beautiful.
2: Do you know if it's like machine learning jokes, or is it like just static jokes, and they just give you one? I think it's static. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's
0: just a list. But there's quite a few.
1: Here's one. To understand recursion, you must first understand recursion. (laughs) It's very meta. (laughs) But I wanted to make a comment on that because we teach recursion to new computer science people all the time, and I don't use it. I never use it. It blows up your stack. I don't think I've used it once in 23 years, and I've never needed a Fibonacci sequence generator. (laughs)
0: That. Yeah, I kind of felt that way when I learned CS. I'm like, this is cool and mind blowing, but will I ever use this? After I saw your comment here, I decided to think about it. I probably have legitimately professionally used recursion like five times. <laughs>
2: yeah, I can attest to that. I've, I've probably done <laughs> similar. To be honest with you, it's not zero,
0: but it's it's not very high given the number of years I've been doing this. Same for you, Hassan.
2: Yeah, because when you think about it, like, what would you use recursion for, right? And it's it's probably. More commonly, you probably use it for like processing of lists of things, you know, and breaking yeah. up lists of things into different pieces. And now most programming languages have things that are in the box in their standard library that'll help you do that. So yeah, I really exactly. haven't had the need to go down that rabbit hole. Exactly. I agree. All right. I have I have one for you as well. Uh,
0: I have two actually, because I had to run pie joke as we were talking about it. So here's one. I, I really like this one. A programmer was found dead in the shower. Next to their body was a bottle of shampoo. With the instructions, lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> he just did it until they died. <laughs> An infinite loop. And then this one's special for you, Brian, because I just ran it and it came up in Pie joke. How do you know whether a person is a Vim user? I don't know how. Don't worry, they'll tell you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I use Vim. <laughs> oh man. I love our jokes so good. <laughs> <laughs> this is weird. Oh, man, this is crazy. All
0: right. It is. All right, guys. Brian, thank you as always. Cecil, thank you for being here. It was a lot
2: of fun to have you on the show. Sure, definitely. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate it. You bet. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Thank
0: you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.